Welcome to my den. You guys are in for a treat today. In fact, our guest today's story um, made me cry, like tear up at multiple points because it's so powerful and moving. And also what he's done to bring hope to the world as a result of it is absolutely mind-blowing. I also have some very um, happy and sad news to share with you in just a couple minutes after I introduce our guest today about some shifts that are coming on our show. Let me introduce you to Chance. We had James Fellows on a couple of weeks ago, and if you listen to episode 39, you'll know that James, his story is incredible too, but James Fellows is one of the partners at Bridge of Hope Careers. And we got off of the podcast where he and my sister and I had a conversation about bipolar reorder. It's a fantastic episode if you haven't heard it. And just talking about how people who have both invisible and visible disabilities need different types of workplaces and accommodations and how we can leverage them as an advantage in our companies. Well, after James and I got off that particular recording, he said, I know who you need to speak with. It's my friend Chance, and Chance is the partner support manager at Bridge of Hope. Now, Chance's story, I thought James's was wild, and it is. Chance's is even more intense. Just the background he has come from and what he has aspired to as a result of that and the impact he's making now is absolutely phenomenal. So here's a bit about him and I'll let him tell his story during the show. Chance was not born lucky. He had a childhood of physical and mental abuse followed by the death of his sister to cancer. He ended up after spiraling with the use of drugs and alcohol out of control and ended up in prison. I'm not gonna spoil any more from you of how he climbed out of that incredible depth of of what prison did to his psychology and also how it became a transformative experience for him in his life. Take special note to a couple of things that blew my mind on this episode. Number one is, I think it's very easy for those of us who are in positions of maybe we grew up in the middle class or upper middle class, like, you know, my family was middle class. I don't think I ever have considered in my life that people coming from not so fortunate of circumstances as mine could have such challenges when they come into the workplace in terms of what they are expected to do or to support in their own families. So, you know, pay special attention to the pressures that someone coming from a background where they might be the only person with a college degree or they're the only person with a job and are supporting a whole household of siblings and grandparents. Like, take some cultural insights. Listen carefully for those in this episode. And secondly, I want you to listen for the type of coaching tips that Chance gives us for people who do come from disadvantaged backgrounds and how we can help uplift them. Trust me, every word of this episode is gold. You're going to absolutely love it. Now, if you enjoy hearing from Chance and you want to go back and listen to the episode with James, I actually was able to work out a special deal with Bridge of Hope, where if any of you guys are looking to recruit 
or hire or even explore hiring people. We call them invisible superpowers, but invisible disabilities coming from different backgrounds who can actually add a lot of value to your workplace. They're offering 20% off to any employers for an annual subscription with unlimited job postings and unlimited hires through Bridge of Hope Careers. If you want info on that, go to bridgeofhope.careers. You can also email chance at info at bridgeofhope.careers. Okay, I promise I won't keep you waiting much longer to hear Chance's story, but I have some very sad and happy, what do we call that, sappy? Sappy news to share with you. And that is that season one of the Native Digital Show is coming to a close. This has been about a year and a half long season. And we are officially closing of sorts the Native Digital Show and reopening or expanding our horizons to rebrand this show for Native Digitals. Dun, 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 dun. So this is the major pivot you're going to start hearing about over the coming weeks. Number one, the show's getting a new name. We're going to be called The Skills in Action, which is a callback to the fact that my company now, the pivot I've made is to starting to skills where we're helping students to get over that work experience hurdle as early as high school by equipping them with real experience and connections in just 10 weeks. So DeSkills is my company, and the podcast will now be called DeSkills in Action. I'll be joined by my co-host, Shweta Tandri, who is the founder of Melodies for Math, and she has a community of about 70,000 followers across TikTok and Instagram, and she is just such a powerhouse. Like She's absolutely amazing. You guys are going to love listening to her. So I know most of you as listeners are parents, leaders, um, your CHROs, you work in amazing companies, but you're likely not high schoolers. So what I would encourage you to do as we shift gears at the end of September with the relaunch of the Skills in Action, bring your high schoolers and your gap year students along for the ride because we're going to be featuring on the Skills in Action conversations with very inspirational Gen Zers from the DeSkills community who are taking their DeSkills out into the world to make impacts. They're building their impact portfolios and they are just inspiring to us all. So that's the first piece. And the second is we're still going to bring leaders on like you who are much further ahead into their careers, but we're calling this segment Rebel Roundtables because these are leaders who've had untraditional pathways to success. They follow their different and they're an inspiration to students who are also considering following their different. So let me give you a bit of a teaser into the show. You're gonna hear this for the coming episodes that we're making this shift. And then suddenly at the end of September, you're going to see this entire brand shift. So don't freak out, but you're not gonna see my face on the Native Digital Show anymore. You will see our new beautiful artwork that we are launching for the relaunch. So here is a summation of what we're doing at the skills in action. If you're in high school, you probably spend a lot of time buried in textbooks, but have you ever thought about how your skills could apply to the real world? It can be daunting to build skills and take them outside the classroom. That's why we're starting this show. 
Welcome to Skills in Action, the show where we help you get the skills you need to impact the real world, not just ace a test or rely on a degree. I am going to be your co-host, Hannah Williams. I am 25 years old and I'm the founder of Skills. And alongside me, like I mentioned, I'll be joined by Shweta Tandri, who's the founder of Melodies for Math. And both of us have forged our own career paths, doing something that we love, not following the traditional pathway. This is a real dialogue podcast for high schoolers, gap year adventurers, and epic parents with a different mind. Each week, we're bringing you to skills deep dives with students making real world impacts and rebel roundtables with leaders who had untraditional pathways to success. And why are we doing this? And at the heart of this is a simple answer. Less than 30% of companies think that students with degrees actually have 21st century marketable skills. That's a big yikes. It's time to teach high schoolers to ditch the script and get to skills and also just side benefit these students who are following this this the skills methodology are more likely to waste less money for their mental health is likely to be better because they're pursuing something that they love and their confidence is likely out of the roof compared to students who are just cramming every day for more tests, more tests, more tests, and not really preparing for life. But here's the exciting part, you guys. If you want to bring your high schoolers along, we're not just a podcast. We're shifting to be a movement and a community. And if you're in high school or your kids are in high school, you can actually join the conversation directly at theskills.io forward slash community. And uh, we actually have a free community on Mighty Networks where everyone can add and voice their opinions, their thoughts, and their stories of how they are getting to skills and building impact portfolios. We're on a mission to help 1 million high schoolers graduate with an impact portfolio of the skills they've applied to the real world. All right, Rebels. So those are the changes coming up. We're super pumped about it. And I am so grateful for those of you who've been longtime listeners of this show. I know this has been an incredibly long intro, but again, I'm very grateful to you. And I hope you'll continue listening as we shift to the skills in action. So without further ado, buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that. And join me in my living room with the amazing Chance Montgomery. So anyway, Chance, I am seriously so excited about today's conversation. Ever since we like chatted a few weeks ago, I've just, I've been sharing your story with people at just like, oh my gosh, I talked to this amazing person who has just such an incredible um, history to tell. And also I, I have to say, you're one of the few people I know who even in just the very short time period that we've known each other, that you are willing to say, hey, you know what? Like, I need to uh, reschedule a call today because I have, you know, a personal obligation or I just need a break today or whatever it is. And I think that's something that so many people are afraid to do. And it it just was so refreshing when um, I think it was the first time we were going to meet and we had to reschedule. And anyway, I just... 
Thank you for being a human who does that. <laughs> That's my pleasure. <laughs> it's it's sort of a weird um, a weird way to get us started, but I just have to say, like, it it's refreshing to speak to someone who says, like, I need to put you know, my needs before work. And that's how we live as humans. And it's just awesome. So I, I don't do this with most guests, um, Chance, but I have to ask you, like, take me back to the beginning of your story, because this is just so powerful. And we have to get out of the gate with this. So what led you to Bridge of Hope? Where did you start? What's like A through Z of how Chance became Chance as you are today? Okay, so um, it's a really tough story to start with. Um, you know, uh, Hannah, look, I, I was born into a family where my dad didn't think I was his. And so I experienced quite a lot of physical abuse as a child. And the first um, was before I was a one-year-old. And that, that left me with uh, what I thought were birthmarks until I was 21. And mum told me on my 21st birthday in front of my dad, what really happened and so that was when I knew the truth I, so I didn't feel significant growing up at home I really didn't you know and I kept you know I ran away a couple of times and I, I finally stayed out but I met some friends and they made me feel significant and loved in fact but the the byproduct of that was they was from the antisocial membership and it was only going to be a matter of time before I got into trouble and I did by the time I was 16 I ended up in prison by the time I was 18, my sister took me to a mental hospital because the childhood trauma and depression had simply taken its toll. And, you know, I, I tried to make some changes, really did, uh, but not to much success because I kept going back to this same network of friends I had and, uh, and, and getting into trouble. And, and then fast forward, my sister, who was my absolute rock on my journey, she died. Uh, she died of cancer, young, age 36. And, and I didn't want to talk about it because then, then that would make it real, which is the worst possible thing you could do because within a year, my life unraveled and I ended up back inside one last time. But this time I sat down and I asked myself this question. I said, do you like who you are? And the answer was worse than no. I, I really, I thought that if this was going to be my life, my existence for my future, I didn't see the point in having one. I really didn't. I just didn't see the point. And so I really seriously, seriously was ready to end it all. And so I was left with these choices to either not live or change. And so I threw everything and the kitchen sink and the neighbor's kitchen sink at change. And I spent three years and 10 months in therapy almost every day to unlock some pain and to deal with those childhood traumas while spending five years studying with the Open University to give myself an education my childhood didn't afford unto me and done swathes of personal development programs. And then this beautiful day came upon me where I was just filled with ebullience and a warm, warm tears of joy came flooding down my face. And it was because for the first time, Hannah, for the first time in my entire life, I felt freedom. No more emotional discombobulation, no more anger. I was filled with forgiveness and topped to the brim with self-respect. And I realized two things had happened to me on that very day. One, my childhood experiences were no longer going to define my future. And two, I'd finally become the person I was always meant to be. 
And so that was the day I decided whatever work I'm doing, I want it to be supporting lives, nourishing communities and really making a difference, you know. And so I went on. I was uh, successfully mentoring young men who'd come into contact with the criminal justice system because I had the blueprint for change. You know, I took components from my therapeutic journey and I took components from my business studies and created a, a mentoring pathway which became really quite successful um, in changing lives. You know, as an example, I take young men, I sit them down and I get them to use this business component about their network. I explain to them, I say, every single opportunity you have in your life, it comes from you and your network. So now let's put your network into two groups. And I put them in the forms of assets and liabilities. And then a lot of young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, you'll find when they put these names down into two groups, the majority are actual liabilities in their life. Um, people who can get them into trouble like myself and things like that, like what happened to me. And so then they look at them and, and they realize that the liabilities outweigh the assets. And then I explain to them, that your natural influences will lead and lean towards the majority of your network, which will explain why you keep on drifting into that antisocial world and getting into trouble. And then I explain to them that your network, if you continue to choose your network based upon, do they look like me? Will they look cool around my friends, etc.? you'll find you just get the same types of opportunities coming at you. And I explained that they must meet people as if they were blind, meet people for their minds. And if you do that, you will diversify your network and therefore your opportunities will become diverse. You'll get some different opportunities coming at you and then will change your life. You know, and it was just incredible. And I enjoyed support myself. I give support now, but I enjoyed support from some of the great charities that we work with. And, um, and through that, I was introduced to this wonderful man who you may know called James Fellows. James is amazing. I'm so glad that we get to have this sort of continuation of Bridge of Hope with, with you, Chance, because um, James, on our episode... I was able to bring in my sister and we had, oh my gosh, that was a just gut-wrenching sort of conversation. Um, so anyway, oh yes, please continue. It's I amazing. saw that. If anyone hasn't seen it, they must see it. It's incredible. And uh, But this was fantastic. I slipped, James said, come over to Bridge of Hope, you know, Bridge of Hope. And I, I didn't go straight away, uh, Hannah, because I was setting up this uh, community interest sort of group called Truth. And we were helping uh, people with diabetes and things like that to to get health specific fruit boxes and all types of things and um but i finally went over to bridge of hope and my god it was like an invitation to heaven for me you know because like i said i was successfully sort of helping young men who'd come into contact with the criminal justice system but when i got over to bridge of hope i could now help veterans people with neurodivergence like myself people with different abilities you know and across the board, and I thought, this is where I want to live. And I thought, how fantastic. Finally, a jobs board, essentially, but one where candidates who are system impacted can go across a bridge towards employers who are looking for them. So that's where I thought, yeah, this is where I want to live. This is where I want to stay. And that's why, you know, we sort of create support 
um, of all different types for any candidate journey that 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 comes our way you know offering uh free financial advice all sorts of things you know things that are really important to people and um all of it's just born out of empathy and real care and and that need my desire my desire is to truly shift a needle on social mobility and so i know i can't achieve this alone i know we can only achieve this in coalition with great partners around the world and 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 people that can bring about some levels of momentum so that there is an actual movement, a, a deliberate movement to shift a needle on social mobility as opposed to what many do is try to tick these boxes because they feel they have to do that, you know, because the stakeholders are looking at them a certain way. People have got to start doing this because we are the human family and we are dealing with our brothers and sisters. And it's as if we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that we are that thing, the human family. We should not wait until Martians come down and say, where are you from? For us to say, Earth. You know, <laughs> you know. Preach. We, <laughs> we need to start taking care of each other now. And if you put high levels of care out there, it will come back to you. If you put high levels of gratitude out there, it will be really good for your mental health. I I could not agree more. And I, oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack and so much I can't wait to talk with you about today, seriously. I, but I, before we get to all of the ways to support folks coming from different backgrounds mm -hmm. and, and all of that and get specific, I, I want to go back to your experience here for a second. And please, mm -hmm. you know, take this as far as you want to or not. But I... I want to go back to the moment where you were talking about when you hit rock bottom and you said like there is a chance to change or there's a chance or, or it's not worth living. Like I either have to, to do something about it or not. Um, and I wanted to ask you about this. Um, it, maybe this is getting a little deep for the very beginning of this episode, but I have several friends in in my life right now who are experiencing what i would consider a rock bottom but i don't i can't say me personally i've never been to a rock bottom i guess maybe it's just the different choices that i've made and and the ones that you know friends of mine or siblings of mine have made and and it's interesting watching someone hit a rock bottom and instead of saying like you did, I've got to change something, I've got to do something. They just continue along this pattern of continually hitting more rock bottoms. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you, like, I'm sure I, I can imagine you've had plenty of friends in the same situation or maybe people who you were friends with who did not pull themselves up and did not escape that and did not become, you know, a founding partner in an incredible company, like who have who have continued to roll around in that rock bottom. Yeah. So I just wanted to get your insight on what is some of the, the psychology of what's happening in that moment of rock bottom? And what did it take for you to just say, I have to change no matter how hard this is going to be to, to pull yeah. myself out? Well, it's you know, my rock bomb, it was it was quite scary because there's this point in your life where you think, can I change? Can I change? Whatever's happened to me in my life that has caused me 
to be so upset and to feel so much pain and all the rest of it. Can I change this? And then he, then I, I started to think about the reason, the reason why I, I was at this place. And it was from my, a lot of it was to do with my childhood experiences and, and not managing emotions well, you know, deciding it's easier to live without emotions because by, and learning that at a very young age, you know, um, but when you reach this sort of point, you can, you can become really not just depressed and sad, but quite angry. And I just felt like I actually don't, this whole thing has defined my whole future, my life. I don't want it to do that anymore. And it was, you know, what, what do I do? Can I do this? And I realized that I had a high level of resilience that, you know, that was really sort of crushed and, and, and tempered in a way. Um, and I just sort of somehow my motivation, I think it's like for someone to motivate me to do something was no longer there. I knew I had to operate on, on determination. I had to operate on determination and determination alone. And so I became determined, determined that whatever's gone on in my past must no longer define my future. And I'm going to do everything in my power to change that. And I know it's not going to happen overnight. I knew at the time that I would have to put in at least five years solid self-work just working on self de personal development. And I ended up carrying this on um, for, for a good 10 years where I really felt fantastic, but I'm still doing it now. I'm still on personal development. Um, anyone I mentor, I take things from them. I'm constantly learning from people. I'm constantly trying to become the best possible version of myself, you know, and there's, one thing that that actually was in the background is how will me ending my life, how will it affect the people that love me? And that thing sort of kept me, maybe without them, who knows, we may not even be having this conversation, but it's knowing deep down that that action will really destroy other people's lives uh, as well. And I, I had a son as well. And so I had to do it for everyone. I had to do it for not just for my family, but for the people that, that I hurt or upset growing up, being a part of this gang and group, you know? And I just wanted to do it for everyone. And so I had all these different things driving me forward, fueling my determination. You know, and so I'd say to anyone who's feeling like they're at rock bottom, there's only one way after that, and that's up. But you have to know that it's about changing the way you think. So I used to say life was hard. Life has been hard for me. Now I've changed that. I say life has been challenging. And there's a reason for that, because I realized that when I was talking to other people, I was also talking to myself. So when I said something was hard, 
I've given my subconscious these instructions that this thing is hard and it would then give those instructions to my body to react. So the next time I'm faced with life, I'm seeing it as something hard. Now, if I said it was challenging, I've given my subconscious the instructions that this is challenging and we like a challenge. So when I'm faced with life again, I think, okay, my body is set up to take on this challenge because that's the instructions it's getting from self. And I started to realize that self-talk was an absolutely powerful, powerful thing. And then I looked at things like doubt and disbelief. I really did. I, I actually teach in my mentoring now. Doubt slows you down. Disbelief stops you from even trying. So why do we use them? Why do we give them so much credence? So I started to operate on belief and belief alone. I decided to just get rid of doubt, get rid of disbelief. And when I started to, to operate on belief and belief alone, I realized I was achieving things much quicker. It's almost as if it created a much clearer path for me to realize, you know, my dreams, you know. So it really is about changing your mindset but changing the way you say things and the way you frame things. I can give you a few examples on that. I've done, I've taken myself out of situations just simply by framing, framing something in a positive way. I'm happy to give you an example of that as well. <laughs> well, no, this is so good. And, and yes, I want to hear an example, but it, it, it ties together two things as you were talking for me in my head, which is, you're, you're reframing how you look at the world to change yourself. But what I also heard you say is that part of the reason you were able to change is because you had this visceral moment where you recognized the impact that your choices would have on other people. And, and, and I see that so many times with, you know, the people in, in my immediate circle who are going through, you know, their rock bottoms is sometimes the only thing I can see them clinging to is if I make a choice, it's going to impact my siblings or my parents or my kids. Yeah. And, I, and I also heard you say, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, Chance, that the example you gave a few minutes ago about when you're mentoring these young men with backgrounds, like what they're dealing with is having no concept without your guidance of how to reframe what's an asset and what's a liability or who's an asset and who's a liability. So I almost, as you were talking about your story and about this example of, of getting out of rock bottom, like all yes. of it comes back to, to mental framing and the long game is are the, sort of the two things I heard you say. It's about saying for five years or 10 years, I'm going to commit to making decisions that impact me in a positive way and where I'm learning and you know, not just expecting it to happen overnight. And it's that those things seem so logical, but I can imagine if you're in, I mean, even for me as someone who's not been in those places, playing the long game and reframing even small things is fucking hard. Like, I don't care who you are or what your background is. Like, those are hard things to do. So um, I'm just blown away that so, well, you're so inspirational because you're someone who's saying I can come from this place and with reframing and putting effort toward the long game, I can now reach where I am. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's also about recognizing the value of time. When you've been away, it's something that you either recognize or, it, or you don't. It just goes over your head. Now, I realized just from sitting down thinking and having the space and time to think that time was a currency. We spend it. You spend money, you spend time. If you spend it, it's a currency. I started to think about how am I spending my time currency? Am I spending it for a return? You know, am I going to get a return on my investment? You know, and when you start to look at your time currency in that valuable way, um, you start to think, right, well, I'm now an investor. I'm an investor of time and I invest my, my time for a return. So my studying five years with the Open University, that was an investment that I knew. I was conscious that I was making that investment and I am enjoying the returns on my investment now, you know? So it's about actually thinking I about where do I want to be? How much time currency do I need to allot to this situation? And also take a little moment to think about how much of that time cash you're burning. Because I did. And I thought, oh my God, I've literally just thrown all my money on the fire kind of thing. You know, I spent so much time doing I'm not going to use the word rubbish, I'll say. Yeah. I just look mm -hmm. back and I think if I could just reclaim back some of that time, man, but we can't. What we have to say is, okay, it was time that I didn't mean to spend in that way, but what have I got from it? I've learned huge lessons. I've got huge amounts of empathy from anyone who's had similar backgrounds and similar journeys. I'm able to understand and empathize when helping young people who's come through um, similar journeys. And so there's so much that I've got from it that I'm now giving back in forms of understanding and helping people to realize um, various things that could happen to them. And also having that sort of I've been there, done it kind of thing. And when you're talking to people, you can actually say, this will happen to you. I can guarantee it if you continue down this path. And they hear it from you. You know, so there are some great things that you've got. For, and that's me, again, framing something in a positive way. Because right. uh, people lose sight of things like that. They think, I'm going for a really rough situation. Well, guess what? You're becoming more resilient. And that's this is how, it, so good. how it works. During lockdown, I got uh, and I, I got Bell's palsy. Now I don't know if everyone knows what Bell's palsy is, but it's when one side of your face collapses. It's like a stroke, and so one side of my face was paralysed. And I I found out when I woke up in the morning, and I went to wash my face, and the soap went in my eyes, and I just thought it was just a bit clumsy. So I washed my sort of washed soap out. Um, anyway, did wash my face, and I put some some facial lotion on and the facial lotion went into my eye and I thought what's going on here and then when I looked in the mirror properly I realized one of my eyes was just dead open and it couldn't close and I realized that the whole of this side of my face couldn't move and so 
a friend of mine called, you know, I went to the hospital, I got rushed in and all sorts of things. And they sorted me out with some tablets and, put, you know, and support. And I'd come back and uh, a, a friend of mine gave me a call. He's heard about what happened. And he's, and he said, how are you? I said, I'm okay. I said, I can't speak properly because only one side of my mouth is working, but I'm all right. He said, you sound chirpy. And, he, and I said, I'm all right. Um, I said, I've got Bell's palsy. They told me that it's not for life. I'm going to be okay. Um, and he said, wow, you know, you're really taking it well. And I said, I tell you why. I said, because I looked up and I saw a ceiling. And I looked around and I thought, this is a warm house. I've got food in my fridge. I've got a wonderful network of incredible people. And I just thought, what a great position to have Bell's palsy in. Because there are people who are homeless who are having the same problems, Bell's palsy and various other things. There are people who don't have food in their fridge having these same problems. How can I be upset having problems that many are having whilst having a roof over my head, warm, flat, lovely place, the whole thing? I couldn't. So I just sort of thought, right, well, I'm going to get out of this situation. Um, so it's already framed in a positive way for me in my mind. So I'm feeling okay. What else can I get out of it? And I thought, right, let me find some empathy. Um, so they gave me an eye patch so that dust didn't get into my eyes. It just couldn't close. So And it's only for when I'm sleeping. So I thought, right, I'm going to wear that eye patch throughout the whole day so I can find some empathy for anyone who was partially blind or blinded in one eye. So I spent the whole day with that just to feel what that might feel like. So I got an understanding of that. And then with the Bell's palsy, I took one another day just imagining the Bell's palsy had gone through the whole body to try and find some empathy for anyone who'd experienced a stroke. And the other thing that I'd done, which used to make me laugh a lot, I used to go into the mirror and if you ever smile with Bell's palsy, only one side of your face smiles and the other side is just dead serious. And I found this hilarious Apart from the fact that it looked like I had a sort of Elvis Presley kind of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was, <laughs> and I used to make me laugh. And so, you know, it's okay to laugh at yourself. It's okay to laugh at problems if you're having them, because all you have to do, if you have one, just look up. If you see a ceiling, just know that you're having your problems with a roof over your head. Now, what a blessing that is. Chance, you're a saint. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is so good. It's so funny to me how, and oh my gosh, I fall into this trap every day. I had to get myself a good friend who we're now gratitude accountability partners. Like it has been so helpful. Like every morning we text each other and say, this is the thing I'm, I'm focusing on or choosing to be grateful for today. And it's so sad to me that we're in a, in a stage of human you know, development where you have to have an accountability gratitude partner, or at least I do, to remember yeah. to be grateful. And it's like, I just, the world needs so much more of this. And mm -hmm. I love that what you did with the eye patch and the, oh my gosh, you've just given me so many ideas for things I need to do in my own life. Um, but I, let's pivot gears because we, yeah. James and I did not get to talk much about actually Bridge of Hope. Mm -hmm. And I really, really, really want to hear what you all are doing to help folks from other backgrounds. I've talked to several people on the show who have some form of, you know, program to help people or at least employers mm -hmm. gain access to diverse talent and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But you guys are by far the most 
unique and the most um what's what's a good way to put it it's like you guys have not not um left anything to chance like it, it just seems like the whole way you've structured the program from you and james's backgrounds like what better founders to do something like this to actually help folks like you and who come from similar places so anyway i just please tell take this any way you want to but what do you all do at Bridge of Hope and, and how is it specifically helping? Remind me the number, but I think James said you guys had helped with it. How many thousand people by this we've, point? We've, we've got, we've got 79,000 candidates who have registered wow. on Bridge of Hope in the last 20 months or so, uh, which it's is phenomenal. absolutely mind blowing, you know, and 20,000 who are live constantly, constantly looking for work. And so, you know, what are we getting right? I mean, I think it's simply because we mean it. I mean, we mean it. It's not about let's set up a business here. It's about let's change lives. And so we mean it. So in terms of um, what we've created, you know, we've created that sort of coalition of skills and support partners um, for any candidate who was to register onto Bridge of Hope. They get to access levels of support. So imagine if you have someone who, jumps onto Bridge of Hope and they're ambivalent, unsure of what they want to do. They can tap into um, our support center onto a, a one system and tap their personality traits in. And in this system, it's gamified and it will give them back a list of industries their personality is transferable to. And that opens their minds up to so much different options, you know, and things like this. You know, we have we have uh, formed partnership with the city and guilds. So anyone who wants to access free qualifications can do so, you know. Um, and we have various sort of pathways into hospitality and other trades. But there were two that were super important um, to us. And that was the financial support that we have for our candidates. So our candidates can access their wages before payday. And why, why is this important? This is important because it doesn't matter who you are. If you go into a new job, you're out of your comfort zone. And I imagine if you're experiencing social anxieties, you know, neurodivergency, imposter syndrome and all these things, and a utility bill comes in whilst you're trying to work your month in hand, that's going to create, create anxiety and you're not going to give the best version of yourself. So now our candidates can say, right, I'll take a week out of the two weeks I've worked, pay this bill and carry on down the good path. And then the other piece of financial support we offer, which is absolutely important, is the free financial advice, especially in these times. But this is, it doesn't stop at the candidate. This is extended to the whole family. And I'll explain to you why. If you're the one in your family that's turned your life around, you've landed a good job, or you're the one in your family that's got that, that diploma, or you're the one in your family that's got a degree, and you're the only one, it's not just your degree. The whole family just got a degree. That's the life of a first-in-family grad, or someone who's just landed that, that good job. It's the whole family celebrating, and every single person in that household banks their hope on one person. And that is two things. One, it's an absolute privilege to be in a position where you can support members of your family, you know, but it still can be a financial pressure at times, you know. So now our candidate can say, yeah, absolutely, you know, 
cousin Tommy, of course I can help you. I'll introduce you to these professionals. They will create a clear budget and pathway for you to get out of your financial troubles and maintain your independence. And that helps to reduce some of the pressure from our candidates. But then they also have this feeling that they have something that they can turn around and support members of the family with. It's so great. You know, you've gone onto a jobs board and all of a sudden your family's got access to free financial advice. You know, this is what it's about. And one of the things that really, really drives me in this space is my son. You know, my, my son, he always said to me, Dad, I love you, whether he's good or bad. Whether I was good or bad, he said, Dad, I love you. As simple as that. But one day he came up to me and he said, Dad, I love who you are. I love who you are. And that moved me almost to tears. Well, it did move me to tears, if I'm honest. And, um, and I started thinking about families from disadvantaged black backgrounds and thought, yes, of course the children love them, but do they love who they are? Because if they love who they are, that's when inspiration strikes in the family household. That's when it taps into that next generation behind you. Because we know when someone has a job, the children are watching. And we know when someone doesn't have a job, the children are watching. And so we know we're making a difference. This is bigger than recruitment. Bridge of Hope is way more than just a job sport. You know, it's a movement almost. And, you know, and we make it easy for employers to subscribe as well. We don't charge any uh, fees per hire and things like this. They get unlimited job postings. They get unlimited hires. We just want to shift the needle on social mobility. And we have incredible candidates fed in from 105 charities and 25 non-Russell Group universities, you know, all looking for jobs, you know, and people who just walk in, people who might be listening to a podcast I'm doing or a talk and say, I identify with that. In fact, like me, I tick so many boxes. There's intersect. I should just have a T-shirt just said intersectionality central. You know, because I'm of a certain age, I'm black, I've got a hidden disability, I'm neurodiverse, I could go on, you know. And so it's about actually getting these people into job. They, they sign up and once they sign up, if they're not supported by a charity, they can access some of the charity partners on the site and jump in it and receive support. You know, so it's, a, it's, it's very, very different. And we are so proud to say that we were awarded last year um, only after running for 16 months, we were awarded by the British Diversity Awards for our social mobility initiatives, which blew our minds because I went to this event. I was just happy to dress up like James Bond for the day, to be quite honest. <laughs> and <laughs> we weren't expecting to win anything because we were up against some huge players. And so when they said, you know, Bridge of Hope, um, James and I, we both looked around to, and is that us? And, you know... It was incredible that they recognized the passion that was behind what we was doing and that it had changed and then it already began to change quite a lot of lives. And I think our, our level of sincerity is what really makes Bridge of Hope special, is what really makes it work. And it's fueled by a passion that you would not believe. Oh, I believe it. Every every single word you you ooze hope, chance. Like it's it's absolutely crazy. And I I want to latch onto something that that you said a second ago because this is amazing what Bridge of Hope is doing. But 
from someone whose perspective is so vastly different from yours, because I grew up in a very privileged family. I didn't have, you know, childhood trauma. And in my world and the peers I grew up with, it's very individual focused. So in terms of, you know, each child is supposed to get into the best college. Each, you know, each kid is expected to be at the very top of their class. Like that, that's sort of the expectation, you know, some parents go hardcore and others, it's just sort of a motivation you inherently have because your peers are all focused on the same thing. So I, I want to highlight something that you guys are doing at Bridge of Hope that to me and to people in, in my peer group who are going on to be, you know, analysts or consultants directly out of college at Deloitte yeah. and, you know, are starting at fairly high salaries. I don't think consciously think of the concept of there are families, many of them around the globe who, for them, one person going to college or one person getting a job is is a representation of the entire family, not just an individual. And And I think what you guys have done with that, if I heard you correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that when a candidate works with Bridge of Hope, that they now can say, so let's say I'm the first college graduate in my family, or I'm the first one with a job that's not a bus driver or whatever. And I, I want to get to this in a, in a second, because something you said on our first call has just stuck with me for weeks about a bus driver. Anyway, so the point being that for someone like me, we we don't think in in that context, like that one person might represent an entire family. And so for you to come out and say, average of hope when someone has a degree or when someone comes through us, we're essentially supporting their entire family's ability to escape debt or poverty or whatever. Yeah. Like that's huge. I don't, I don't think I even understood the, um, the real struggles that most families are, are facing when it comes to this and in, in social mobility and breaking poverty cycles or drug cycles or addiction or like whatever, like that's an immense amount of pressure that one person in a family is under. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit more about that. Um, what might it look like for a candidate? Like what's, what is their life experience when they start with Bridge of Hope? What might be happening back home that me as a person who's never gone through this yeah. um, should know about? Like what's happening at home? What are they coming to work with? What are they, what's on their mind all the time? What's causing anxiety? Um, take that wherever, wherever you want to. I'll take it. Now, people, people from disadvantaged backgrounds, you will find that other family members around them, cousins, friends, neighbors, experience lots more problems and issues than many others. And so therefore, you know, if, you're the person that's got this job or you're, you, you know, you, you, you're coming over as someone who can solve some problems, you get flooded and, and everyone sort of brings these problems to you. And so whilst you're working, a part of your time is cut aside to sort out lots of different micro problems. And I, I'll tell you, sometimes I find myself outing fires while my own house is burning down, you know, kind of thing, you know, and you go out and you, you tend to put, family first and, and, and yourself second a lot of the time, you know. But then there's also families like mine from my parents' generation, you know. And and they, they advised me not to go for these jobs because you're never going to get them. They won't let you in. 
I was told to, to go for jobs as bus driver um, and this type of thing, bus conductor, um, because they will have you, but no one else will. And parents of my generation were telling their children that to keep them safe from hurt, harm, disappointment and rejection. And, um, and it was really sad. So lots of, lots of young people didn't aspire, but there was lots of us who was like, I don't want to be a bus driver. And, you know, or, or one of these things. There are people with these high aspirations, but are being told, don't go there. They won't let you in. And so that's a whole different existence, you know, um, because you just look at everything around you and you just feel like none of it's attainable. None of it. I, I don't want to, want to interrupt you here, but I have to ask, like, in families like yours and your life experience growing up and your friends, how often was the concept of entrepreneurship ever discussed, if ever? Well, people don't didn't really discuss the concept of entrepreneurship. However, it did come in the form of survival activity. You know, people doing things, side hustles of all different types, some salubrious, some insalubrious, I have to say. But people were doing these things to stave off, well, ending up being a vagrant, I suppose, you know, because that's the other option. And, you know, and so there was all these sort of different side hustles and things that came about. You know, they had a, um, a system called a partner system um, where each family member puts in um, lots of groups of different families. They put in like 20, 30 pounds a, a month into this kitty and then someone gets all of it on one day and everyone keeps putting in. Someone gets all of it on another day just so that people can experience getting that lump sum. It's sort of like almost a way of saving up, but you'd be able to get your money early at some points and stuff. And so there was these sort of underground systems um, in place, you know, but any little thing where someone could sort of make money, they would, they would do it, you know? And so, so, so entrepreneurship really, really was taking place in so many different ways, you know? Um, and I used to fix things because I come from a family where if you broke something, we couldn't afford to buy another one. You, you had to repair it. So I became really good at repairing things, you know, and that led to me opening up um, mobile phone repair shops. No one taught me how to repair a mobile phone. I just had an idea how to repair everything. I knew how to open something up, have a look inside, figure out what was going wrong and, and so forth. And so these sort of different levels of entrepreneurship sort of came out of survival um, yeah. initiatives more than anything else. And a lot of the time people didn't realize that they were entrepreneurial, you know, I know a lot of the young men that I actually ended up hanging out with, some of whom um, became drug dealers and this type of thing. And I realized now that they were entrepreneurs. You know, Absolutely. their transferable skills are amazing. Their negotiation skills um, are incredible. Their work ethic is like no other. I've heard of people staying up two nights in a row to do that job. And no nine to five is willing to do that for any company. And so the work ethic <laughs> is phenomenal, you know. Um, but when I realized that this was born out of survival is because I'd got a group of young men, sat them around in a circle 
uh, for a mentoring journey. And I started off and I said to them, okay, guys, what's your dream job? Not one person said drug dealer. So we know that's not their dream. That's not what they want to do. I've heard shoe designer, jeweler, someone went to be an engineer, another person went to be an actor, you know, and with that, we was able to create pathways for them to realize those dreams. Just even finding out where to go. Some of them just didn't have an idea and the other half just didn't believe those gates would be opened for them. And it took for me to actually say, look, some of these gates are open and the ones that are not, I'll help you to get in, you know, and, you know, and, and that's what it's like. So it was like growing in this environment where you're locked out of everything and the things that you're not locked out of, you still believe you are. So don't go down that direction. So, well, that's what was so interesting to me as you were, as you were describing this is it's, it's almost like you've got this survival instinct that shows or forces you to be industrious, industrious, entrepreneurially minded. Yeah. But at the same time, if I heard you correctly, there's a, this cultural element where your parents are telling you your ceiling of possibility is a bus driver. So yeah. it's like, it, it almost seems to me and help me reframe this if I'm not seeing it correctly, but it's, it's like there's this this cultural element that you are forced to get skills that are actually really incredibly valuable mm -hmm. at any workplace. Like, the, like to your point, the grit, the resilience, the yeah. commitment, the dedication. And then at the same time at home as a kid, you're being told that your ceiling of possibility is very low in order to keep you safe. So yeah. if you're a kid dealing with those two very um, sort of oxymoronic life experiences, yeah. then how do you get how did you get past the ceiling to say i am capable like i can do i can land these jobs that i was told i i wasn't cut out yeah. for well i just realized at that point where actually all of my realization came at that point where i was that day when i considered ending my life and i had to take stock of everything you know that was actually it was more of a, no, 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 I can do this. I must do this. I am determined to do this. I'm going to continue to knock on doors until they let me in. And if it takes studying this and studying that to formulate a key for that door, then let me do that. And which is what I've done. And, um, and it is just that determination. One of the things that has come from out of it all is the resilience. You know, and we know that resilience and grit is the number one predicator for success now. We know that now. And so, you know, I will talk I, I will talk to anyone who's experienced that sort of teaching, don't do this and don't do that, to say, actually, you have what it takes to be remarkable. Because good is quite invisible. There's lots of good things, lots of good people. But being remarkable... It's just that little step outside of good, that little push further, you know. Um, and so I know everyone's got the, the, the potential to be remarkable. It's just for them to convince themselves of that. And then so people good. really do try to go. Once they know being remarkable is not that far away from being good, it's the extra push, you know, they will go for it. You know, Absolutely. and I think it's it's it really is again all about mindset. Thank you for that. Yes, it's so 
So good. This is gold. So, okay. So let's go back for a moment to what we were talking about a second ago, which is what the life experience is like of someone who came from a disadvantaged background, but now they've, you know, come through Bridge of Hope. They've Mm. got a great career. You talked about some of the pressures they might be dealing with the, you know, micro crises at home and putting family first. If I'm an employer Mm -hmm. and I am, you know, let's say it's someone like me and they're Mm -hmm. in in an executive role and they've never experienced this. What are some of the things as an executive or as a manager mm-hmm. I should be looking out for or listening with empathy for yeah. based on the circumstances that my employee from a different background might be dealing with at home or in life? And maybe give if you could if you have some really specific examples, maybe mm-hmm. it's something that candidates have gone through recently that would help me sort of get into the mind of what it's like to be one of these one of these humans talking about just a human to human connection, yeah. help help me understand and empathize with them at a deeper level than maybe I'm able to right now. Yeah, I think I think it's I think what employers need to understand is, is candidates who are just the first in family grad or the one who's just the one the only one in that house that has got that good job, they should really understand that this is someone who's carrying a huge load, and they're carrying it with a smile, and so. <laughs> It's about actually taking time out with candidates like this, sitting them down and saying, are you okay? And is there anything we can do to help? You know, there are organizations that give um, days off for voluntary work and things like this. I think that when it comes to system impacted candidates, employers should consider saying, do you want X, Y, Z days off a year? just to support family, just to be with family and and things like that. And they don't have to be fixed dates. As something comes up, we'll give you a free pass. If stuff comes up, you know, and you get, I don't know, seven free passes for the year or something like this. We just want to let you know, we understand that when you come from certain backgrounds, more friends and family go for a lot more shit than a lot of regular people. and so, you know, we get it. We get it and we want to be there for you. As it stands, these people are in the workplace and they look like nothing's wrong when everything is, you know, behind the scenes, you know, and they're playing that role of I'm the one that's going to have to sort this out or um, the, the voice of reason or, or any of these things. So um, it can be quite, it can be quite tough. It can be quite tough. And I think employers should just sit people down sometimes and talk to them, find out, you know, what they can do to help, you know, because what they'll be talking to is, for one, they're talking to this person who is, who is indeed a diamond, a diamond in the rough, you know, who only needs a little bit of polishing, a spark like any other diamond, you know. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's just about actually knowing that what you have is a gem, and you should do everything in your power to take care of that gem because people who are system impacted, um, they actually work harder because they're used to working hard to get things. So it's like a default, you know, but and there's a level. I want to go there in a second too, just as, as a heads up to it. So like understanding what what to uncover in these candidates that are superpowers, yeah. but just to dive a little bit deeper into this yeah. particular scenario. So pretend I'm like, 
I don't know, third grader right now yeah. and help me understand at the most basic level what might be the some of those huge loads that a mm. candidate is experiencing. And I'll I'll just give you I'll some context you for this one. question. Oh, okay, you, yeah, go for it. I'll tell you a massive load. When you come from a certain um, economic or socioeconomical background um, and you have lots of friends and lots of family and all the rest of it, and you start to do well, it affects people. It affects people and sometimes it affects people positive where they're happy for you, great that you're doing this. And then there are others that will feel as though your advancement in life is highlighting their lack of. And then you may find people not liking you all of a sudden because you're doing well. And it's so easy to get angry with people that do this. You know, um, we call it, I'm from Jamaican background, we call it crab in a barrel syndrome, you know, where one crab's about to get up and the other one pulls it down and in the end, no crab gets out. And so I've had sort of people, you know, try to do things to derail my journey, you know, and this happens to a lot of people with backgrounds. If you're just trying to get somewhere, people, it just affects people. And it's not about being angry with them or being judgmental on them because everyone's at different levels of personal development in their lives. And if you're already feeling quite crap about yourself and then someone right beside you starts to rise up, it's like having a spotlight shone down on you. And so they react in panic to try and put that light out, put that light out. It's, you know, and a lot of people experience this a deep thing and it's real and it's happening to a lot of people. And it's formed from jealousy and things like this um, that could come about. It, it just exists, you know, and it, and it must be challenging for anyone who's struggling and then you're the same as them or from the same sort of background as them, but you're no longer struggling because you're, you're, you're doing what you're doing. Um, it, they do see, look at what you own and what you have and things like this and compare to, the, and it brings up all sorts of feelings. And this is, these are some of the real true things that happen to, to people uh, um, across the board, you know. And the only sort of cure for it is for everyone to just actually don't recognize it as a spotlight shining down on you. Look at it as an inspirational ladder to climb up and try to go for that. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to have family members who have been inspired, in fact, you know, and now they're inspiring me and it works both ways. But there is that element that exists in the community, not just a family, but in the whole community, that when you start to rise up, there will be some people, not all, but there will be some people who just don't want you to be there. This is so good. And this is exactly the type of uh, inside the, the mind look that I, mm -hmm. I need to hear because if I'm an employer and I know I have people on my team coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, mm -hmm. maybe that's a, a conversation I need to have within the first couple of weeks of work is, hey, you know, you've got a great job and I'm so happy to have you on my team. And I just, you know, wanted to ask you because, hey, I've got other folks on my team who have shared this with me comp in, in, you know, in confidentiality um, that the, at home they're dealing with family members who aren't happy they've got 
this great job. And I just wanted to make that a topic that's open for you to come to me about and say, hey, if my family's struggling, how, how do we talk through this together? Because they're trying to pull me down. And, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to lose you because you've lifted yourself up. So like, I, I can just see as a manager or as an employer, how, how important having this type of challenge brought out into the light can be to yeah. retain candidates like this. Because yeah. if you're someone who is the first person in your family to have a great job and you're getting pulled down, mm-hmm. um, let's say you have that combination of things you've described, you're getting pulled down, you have all these people coming to you with these um, challenges that they're dumping on you. You're you're not getting proper sleep because you're up late dealing with you know someone calling you late at night because they're in yet another challenging situation. Like I can imagine, you've got to have a framework for knowing how to put up boundaries, how to have better conversations with your family yeah. members. Like I, I'm just imagining all the challenges that come out and how much responsibility falls on a manager to recognize and bring out into the open some of these challenges that yeah. their candidate might be dealing with and and how yeah. that could help them build a, a stronger relationship with yeah. them um well, this, this is, is there important. anything you would you'd add to that yeah well this is why we created the coalition of skills and support partners i think if employers look at these types of things and put sort of have um, partnerships in place that will support their candidates so that they can say, okay, you might be going through this, talk to these guys, they'll help you with this stuff. You know, they'll they'll give you some emotional support, you know, because it is what it is, this stuff's gonna happen. But it's like, you know, if someone's at work pretending none of that's happening, they're not really being the true version of themselves. They're doing themselves a disservice, in fact, be, because they're, they're, they're trying to be someone else, you know, and it's and it really is important that people bring their true self to work and say, look, you know, I go through a load of shit in the week, in the evenings. When everyone's clocked off at five and gone off for that thing, I've got to deal with this, this and this, to be quite honest with you. And so, you know, feel free to give me that extra seven days holiday time if you like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I'll work hard during the week. But, you know, it's it's just about actually thinking about, thinking a little bit deeper than just people might need financial support, people might need, just thinking about a little bit deeper um, and actually having maybe networks where people could have conversations and opportunities where people could have private one-to-one conversations. And, and, And it's important that the people at the top, your CEOs coming down, let people know that it's okay. It's okay to have family problems. It's okay that you may have them in abundance or more than many others. You know, we've got your back. And you tell a candidate that, I don't think someone could even poach them. And you tell a candidate that, you'll probably have someone working for you for life. So good, so good. Okay. For our very last few minutes, tell me about some of the these strengths that you touched on, sort of left diamonds throughout our conversation about some some strengths or superpowers that someone with a disadvantaged background is bringing to work that we just may overlook because we've never experienced it before. Like, what mm-hmm. are some of those qualities that that those people have very uniquely uh, because of the place they've come from? 
Well, I think, I think apart from sort of bringing that resilience, I mean, you know, I've got like a natural ability to negotiate and, and things like this. And, uh, you know, as an example, you know, there was a, a group of us who went into a, an organization um, to partner with them. We negotiated a really good partnership and deal. And, and at the end of it all, um, I won't say the name of the organization, but at the end of it all, they said, um, okay, we've got a deal. It's great. We're in partnership. Is there anything else you want, would like? Now, the two people beside me had gone to a completely different type of school to me, let's say. Um, and I said, actually, yes, I'd like um, two things. And they said, oh, what's that? And, um, and so I said, I'd like an office in your building, if I can, and one of your branded coffee mugs. So something of this small and something so huge. And the guy was like, Wow. Okay. And I said, but look, you only get out of life what you're brave enough to ask for. And he said, okay, fix him up with an office. And he gave me a coffee mug. My two colleagues was like, how did you, how did you do that? And I said, it's, we grew up having to ask for that little bit extra. You know, we grew up seeing if you could get something more because we never had enough. We're not used to having enough. And so these sort of transferable skills actually got uh, an office, lovely office building and the whole thing. And so it's just actually some of these things really come through because we're brave to ask for, for things that people be scared to ask their peers for, you know. And so when you bring someone like me through into this corporate world, I'm the guy that will ask for things that no one else will, or, you know, or, or people are just not brave enough. And we're, we just seem to be, I didn't think it was even bravery. That's you just know? like no, normal, normal uh, situation, right? Normal situation, you know, absolutely normal situation. Um, and, but the, the thing is, it's that level of resilience, that grit. But I always say about this, I have this analogy about diamonds and recruiters going in to that jewelry shop and they're buying that ready cut diamond. And it's lovely and it's sparkling. Um, and the jeweler's got a lovely smile on his face and all of that. But some of them are zirconas. Some of them are cubic stones because mum wrote the CV or someone like me wrote the CV. In fact, chat GTP is writing the CVs yes. now. So I'm saying to them, well, look, we can't be sure of these, these diamonds in the jewellery shop anymore. We just have to try and be fair with everyone. But I tell you what, you mine for those diamonds in the rough those diamonds in the rough and they do like it's true I only need a little bit of support and, and stuff like this um, before I was sparkling like a diamond but a, a real diamond is those diamonds in the rough you know you can't go wrong with those and and CVs I think CV is the hugest enemy of the recruitment industry it's one of the hugest barriers you know it's the very thing they use to send through these applicant tracking systems and the applicant tracking system, they don't like people with a gap on their CV. They don't like people from this particular post go They don't like, and it's incredibly, it just cuts out so much people from the job market. You know, when in fact, if someone's got a gap on their CV, I think people should just simply be curious. Why have you got a gap? Let's get that person in. Let's find out what that gap was about. 
It might just be they was doing something remarkable. It might just be that they were the only one in their family able to support um, a mother or, or, or someone like that and had to take that time out to be a carer and things like this. You know, it's just people really do need to stop recruiting and start changing lives. Because if you do that, then the interview questions will change. Your attitude to recruitment will be different, you know. And so this is when you actually, when you get these people. And the other thing that I, I quickly squeeze it in, the other thing I, I had to tell some recruiters, I said, if your company, if your company was a person, would you invite that person round to dinner? Would you invite that person amongst your diverse friends? Would you bring that person home? Because if the answer is no, there's work to be done. Because that personality exuding from your company is what the stakeholders see. It's definitely what candidates see. We see the personalities of all these organizations. Now, if you look at your company as a person and you can get that personality into a position where you can say, I would take this person at home to meet my family, then you've got inclusivity right. You've got it so right that you're proud enough to bring it to this company home. And so it's about changing your mindset completely about this whole business, this whole business of recruitment, you know, and really drop your whole sort of mindset onto thoughts of social mobility. How can we actually make our human family happier? Mic drop. <laughs> oh, so good. Oh my gosh. Chance, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, is there any last thing that you want to touch on that we didn't get to cover? No, I, I was sort of what thinking about this question about something that happened when I was much younger or something that no one had ever known. Um, but I'll just tell you quickly to just to close it off. When I was nine years old, I tried to make an airplane. Yeah, in my mum's garden, made out of wood because we were quite poor. So we had, we made our toys a lot of the time and we used the propeller from these little fans, these face fans to um, put in the toothpaste box to make these aeroplanes. And so I decided that if we can do it with the little motor, when we saw this huge motor inside the vacuum cleaner, my brother and I, we thought, oh, we can make a big version of that. So when mum went bingo, we went up into the shed and we started to build this airplane with the idea that we were going to take that vacuum cleaner motor and stick into this thing. And we did. And we built the airplane, the wings, the whole thing, nailed it together, the whole lot, and um, realized that you have to plug it in. <laughs> so with that, we ended up getting all the wires from around the house, linking them together plugging it in, knowing that it couldn't go far. We just wanted to see if it would take off. And so we plugged it in and switched it on. And it just chased my brother around the, the garden. Um, and uh, he ended up cutting his finger and it was horrific. Um, so we just plugged it out. But yeah, um, I've never tried to build an airplane since. But you never know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
my gosh, I love that so much. Not the not your brother cutting his finger, but oh my gosh, do you have yeah. pictures of it or anything or was it no, just No, we don't because it, we 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 didn't keep any evidence, you know. We we got into really big trouble for this. I mean, really big trouble because we were just innocent wanting to be engineers and build things, you know, but my brother and I we still laugh about it today. He still got the scar on his finger. Um but yeah, it was funny and we just, you know, when you think about it, we were going through all that type of upbringing and stuff like that. But here were two young boys wanting to build an aeroplane. The right person had spotted that. That's potential right there. This is the sort of thing that's happening in households. Um, and I wish someone had spotted that potential because you never know, you know, it could well have been something I'd got into. At a really young age. Wow. What a close. Thank you seriously so much, Chance. This is um, it's amazing. You're welcome back anytime. So good. This has just been amazing. And I can't wait to see, I, I can't wait to see Bridge of Hope go from 80,000 candidates that, that have been helped 80 to million. 80 million. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. 80 million. <laughs> Next target. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And I thank you so much for having me on the on your on your show. I'm really grateful, really grateful for that. Well, there he is, the amazing Chance Blue Montgomery. I am so privileged that we had to have got to have this conversation. If you enjoyed it, please do go check out Bridge of Hope Careers. And again, if you want to take advantage of that twenty percent off that they are giving listeners of this show, just email info at bridgeofhope.careers. You can get an annual subscription 20% off so you can lock unlock the potential of these incredibly talented individuals. Just uh, make sure you, you know, send them, tell them Hannah sent you over, tell them Native Digital sent you over the Native Digital show and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.